Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening to the podcast yet again. Joe Mauricio is our teacher, our guest for the podcast. This was a talk he gave at a weekly Dharma gathering a couple weeks ago. And it's about learning to be present, learning to be here now. And yeah, that's what a lot of these talks are about. But particularly, Joe is getting at the importance, the, the power our presence has on the people around us. People's moods infect each other and sort of seep into the ether. And if someone's in a, in a bad mood, it can sort of wear off on us. Well, what if the alternative is true? What if, if we are in a confident and open state of mind? What if that rubs off on other people? And what effect could that have on our world? If a lot of us are meditating and cultivating this sense of being here now, Visit our website, ny.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. We have another seven-day meditation retreat happening in August, August 17th to August 24th. Uh, You can meditate for a week in New York City. If you can't do the whole week, you can just do the first weekend or by the day, make it fit with your schedule. But it is a rare opportunity to really get a deep uh, retreat experience in New York City. It is being led by Shastri Nick Kranz. He's a great guy. He's uh, a great teacher, a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. This will be his first time, I believe, leading a week-long retreat at the New York Shambhala Center. Bottom line, we're really lucky to have him. And if you can uh, take some time to join this retreat, I don't think you'll regret it. For more information and to register, Click the link on our homepage, ny.shambhala.org. It's the Meditation in the City Retreat, August 17th to August 24th. You'll be hearing a lot about it between now and then. And now, here is Joe Mauricio. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of things. One is all of this uh, kind of talk about posture and everything. It just comes down to the idea that if you're slightly upright, not like, but, you know, just open and awake, that you actually project a kind of a reasonability to your world. And people trust you more if that's important. Not to say they distrust this, but you kind of feel for somebody that's kind of impacted that way. But also, how does it affect our mind, right? It seems to be, well, not seems to be, there are actually results around tests that have been done. How many people are familiar, this is old news now, but Amy Cuddy a few years ago, do you remember her? Yeah. Uh, So she talked a lot about, she's from Yale or Harvard? (laughs) But some place that makes her, important, and, uh, and her research, kind of verifiable, it's quite good, that it only takes two minutes for the brain to begin to reconfigure itself toward confidence when the spine is erect, you know, that 
Ironically, when you feel threatened, if you do this, then you're becoming a victim, kind of, you know, right? But if you sit, sit up, if you do this, then you're antagonizing, right? Does that make sense? But if you just find the middle way, and that's what we're going to talk about today, between aggression and victimization, right? Just find a simple way of just being present and available. You're strangely actually more capable of defending yourself if you need to, you know, because this is just antagonizing someone else. But this is very hard to defend yourself from, right? Does that make sense? So ironically, this idea that we become rabbits or ostriches and kind of hide from our fear is really not helping so much. It's understandable. We don't have to feel badly about it. But if you're able to actually begin to retrain yourself to sit up straight, I actually coach, right? So I'll talk to people and, and, and I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, I'm just a ball of tension. And I'll be like, well, you need to tell me that. I can, you know, it's something you can feel, right? And then, uh, I, why? It's like, well, work has just been crazy. Well, then why not relax? Now, that sounds silly, right? But if you think about it, we could retrain ourselves to be like, oh, my work is crazy. I should be more sane. Does that make sense? I could actually sit up and relax because why am I taking it personally? If the person in the kiosk next to me, kiosk, what are those? I don't know, don't work in offices. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the person next to me in the kiosk. In the, well, first of all, if there's a kiosk in your office, that's a problem, but you know, you, if they're nuts, become more sane. Does that make sense, right? But that, and, and, and I'm in the same boat as everyone else. I mean, I do the same thing. I get affected by everyone around me. But I wonder why that's helpful. And I don't think it necessarily is. If the world is a crazy place, become the one sane element within it. I'm going to tell you more about that in a minute. I have a great sort of story that I love that I'm going to share. Um, about the king Ashoka from India. And this is like a classic myth that sort of expresses this whole point. But if you're sitting up straight, you're not antagonizing, no, no, I'm just, no. You're not, you were fine. But you're not antagonizing anybody, right? As much as you're just being present. But what you're really doing, and the point I want to convey here, is that you're neutralizing all of the negative stories that get harbored in this body. Does that make sense? You're just letting them go for a moment. What would it be like if just for a moment we weren't great, but we weren't horrible? Middle way, right? What if we just were? Like if we just let ourselves be, you know? If we had a day when we weren't going to sit up straight because we just couldn't, why couldn't we just be that, you know? And know that it's not helping anything, but that's the best we could do. That's okay. Like getting off our own back and allowing ourselves to just be. And that idea of sitting up is, isn't just like, sit up straight, young person. Like the way I skirted the whole gender thing there. And... Uh, 
But, you know, it's not that. It's just like, just get rid of all the crazy tension and let yourself be, you know, kind of here. So the idea of nonviolence is not that we have to be victims or we have to be shrinking violets in any way. We could actually be very powerful and very present in our world. We don't have to show that presence by how much we could destroy someone else. We don't have to show our strength by proving we have more strength than someone else. Why does it matter how we compare to anyone else, really? except that we're conditioned in our society to always do that. But in a real enlightened society, which is just theoretical, I admit, at this point, and who knows if Shambhala existed, I don't, just because I come to this place with the name doesn't mean I believe everything, you know? I'm still a little cynical, and I think we all should be. But I love the idea that there is a possibility of a culture where everybody isn't the same and everybody isn't perfect, but that people could just be who they are, you know? That you have the situation where we have, can have the largesse to allow everyone else to just be who they are and not drive us crazy because we have our own personal sanity. Does that make sense? And if somebody is crazy or nuts or a little out of it or aggressive, maybe the community could care for them and self-stabilized. We call it a self-caring community. And we try to create those in Shambhala in some of our retreat centers, like Shambhala Mountain Center. Maybe we just did that a little bit here. It's too large a group to get too into it. I would love to do more work like that uh, on weekend levels like that, but where you actually create a community where if somebody's having difficulty, instead of ostracizing them or antagonizing them, you actually Create a container where you care for them. Wouldn't that be amazing? You know? Donald, sit down. Come here. Come here, Donald. You know, and you, you forget your hair. It's okay. I know. Come here. Let me hug you. That's hard for me. I don't know if I could hug Donald, but, you know. But if we could begin to open up to the things that bother us rather than antagonize. So, Chung Rinpoche, the founder here, said something extraordinary, and I had a hard time with it when I was a younger student, but I've kept it as a koan, do you know a koan, like a, a Zen riddle in my mind, that aggression is anything that separates us. And somebody once said, separates us from each other, and he said, separates us, even from ourselves, right? Like self-aggression. And that's an interesting way to look at it. It's like even if you don't think you're being aggressive, but you're being passive aggressive, or you're just not being open, does that make sense? That maybe there's a sense of aggression there. There's a beautiful course of study, and I, I'm not going to get too into it because we don't have that much time, but I encourage people, and I'm sure a number of you are familiar with Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, right? And there's some real kind of interesting ideas in that. Like, violence and communication can be quite subtle. As we're learning now with Me Too, with different situations, you know, that it could actually, I, I, it happened recently, uh, for me, I'll, I'll explain where I was kind of caught up and learned something. 
but there was uh, kids were here, and one young lady was dressed up as a princess, and I told her she was beautiful. I said, my God, you're beautiful. And this woman said, don't say that. And I thought, that's ridiculous. She's a princess. You have to tell a princess they're beautiful. But she actually explained it to me, and we actually talked about it, that there is something a little violent about that, right? An older person telling you who you are or how you look. Does that make sense? Now, I think it was probably forgivable on my part because there's a cultural thing around that. But in a way, becoming more and more attuned to how we do that kind of thing. Let me hold the door for you. You know, even subtle ways that we take ownership of other people, right? Or we're nice to them because we want something back from it, right? And we end up living in a world where we can't trust anybody because we've been encroached upon so much, violated so much, because everybody wants a piece of everything else. Because why? Because people don't feel comfortable just being themselves on their own. If you feel comfortable with who you are, it's likely someone else isn't going to feel threatened as though you're going to take something from them. Does that make sense? So to actually get too into the PC world where we're just worried about everything is not the point. But to be able to be more attentive to how our communication is and is it communicating or is it separating? Does that make sense? Right? I think you people have come a long way. You're just almost like us now. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he's, your English is getting so much better. Any of the subtle ways that we make other people feel different, right? So that we can feel a little more powerful, right? I heard that recently. It, it was all in, it wasn't mean-spirited, but it was interesting to hear this uh, fellow. And he was, uh, obviously didn't grow up around people who are very different. And he was trying to talk to a Spanish-speaking person. And he was like, well, I noticed that your language, you know what I mean? And he was like talking to them. And it, it, he was trying. He was trying. But he was making him, the other person so uncomfortable. <laughs> and they were like, OK, I didn't expect to have to show up and talk about my accent and my language and you know stuff like that. Right? And it was kind of like, why? Because he was uncomfortable. Does that make sense? And so it was this invasive thing. But he was trying. It was OK. And, and he was trying. But subtly looking at how we actually communicate with each other. And are we trying to get the upper hand? Are we trying to be more powerful? We, uh, you see this throne up here. That's where the Sakyang that gets moved to the front of the room when he speaks here. And he sits on a throne. That's. Uh, you know, very Tibetan. Because in Tibet, the politics and the religion were very entwined. So he is considered a, a king level, or a prince level, at least, in his country. When he goes back there, they treat him with this kind of, like, like we would Prince William or something. And I get all of them confused, or Harry, or whichever <laughs> one of those white people. And, uh, but... 
he uh, was giving a talk on Shambhala Day, which is the Lunar New Year, and we celebrate it as like a fresh start here. And so he's speaking, he was actually in Halifax, but he's on a throne like this, and he's giving his talk as the, you know, kind of like the king of our, of our little community, if you will. And um, his daughter decided that she needed to talk. Uh, she was three at the time. And just completely, every time he opened his mouth, she undercut it. She had something else to say. <laughs> and she was really loud. And he said, and I love this, he said, this throne business, it's not the way it works at home. You know that, right? <laughs> And meanwhile, she gets up and she's three and she just starts talking to everyone. And uh, so this is something that we do to pay respect for the teacher and the teachings and the lineage from where it comes, right? But it's all theater. It's not meant to make anyone better than anybody else. Does that make sense? And it really is amazing to uh, see a three-year-old kind of take her complete seat, and uh, some people think that maybe she'll be the next leader at some point, you know, and, or one of her sisters. So we're very excited in this community because I think many of you know that the Tibetan system, like lots of systems, has been very leaning toward patriarchy a lot and more men involved. There are some great women teachers, Khandra Rinpoche, Pema Chodron, and all through history, Machin Labtram, Yeshe Tsogyal, there have been great women teachers. But the preponderance is usually men. And I think it's because men are more naturally like to tell people what to do. Uh, so they <laughs> naturally go into those positions. But that's changing now. And it's important that that's changing now. And the next leader of our community will certainly be a woman. And I think most of us are very excited about that. Not because women are better, but because it seems like it's time, don't you think? For a little adjustment in the balance? I don't, what do you think? <laughs> what I'm hoping is though, that when y'all come to power, you don't just slaughter the rest, you know what I'm saying? Because then that becomes the other thing, right? Because then it's like, okay, now we're the, now we'll wield the aggression and make you feel like a second-class citizen. That doesn't seem to be the point. What is the possibility that we all could just relax and begin to appreciate each other? And if somebody's a little loud, appreciate that about them. And if somebody's a little nervous, appreciate that about them. And let ourselves just kind of be who we are. Is that possible? I'm curious. It's, Anybody have a thought about that? Is it possible to live into a society where we could begin to honor each other for who we are and how we are without expecting everyone to conform to some sort of thing? Any thoughts? You have the mic, so you could just chime in if you want. You don't have to be the... That's okay. <laughs> I'll let someone else speak first. Good, 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 okay. Yes, sir. In part, it, it depends how you define a society. Like if you're talking about a nation state, we have all these large nation states and 
like the United States, for example, and um, you know whether that can function as one society, I don't, I really don't know anymore. But there can be societies within that, um, just kind of more how I see the future of this nation, perhaps, is just this confederacy, weird confederacy of um, almost like dunces. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, that that probably did pop in my no, like city states almost, like in mm -hmm. medieval times or whatever, and that you know the society of one like California or New York or something could function differently than the society of Kentucky and things like this, or even within New York City, micro societies that that maybe the future is more going away from viewing society as American society or the West or things like this, and you could just be more localized and be sort of like, well, my society is doing all right, you know. And it could be, you know, like 10 people or something, really. <laughs> Are you saying that's positive? Or has the potential to be? Or well, it's, there's a spectrum in history, and that might mm -hmm. be one, you know, place that's getting to the ultimate goal, you know. Mm -hmm. might might be these weird, you know, imperfect zones that we might have to pass through in order to, in order to get further toward that, yeah. that vision. Thank you. You asked the question about accepting people as they are, and mm -hmm. what came to my mind is in New York City, in my experience, there's probably hundreds of places in which that's going on in such important ways. It's like kids who have um, developmental disabilities, for example, or developmental delays, and environments where they're just so supported and accepted for who they are, um, or in places where People are struggling with poverty in, in classrooms where they're being supported and helped to really appreciate who they are for who they, and, and to maximize the possibilities for who they're going to be. And I think this is happening all over. Unfortunately, it's not happening in every place where it needs to happen, but it is happening in very, very large numbers. Wonderful, wonderful. I love the idea, and we could talk about this but maybe it, was, it wouldn't be the best use of our time, but it, it's a discussion we could really have, which is, is it the best of times or the worst of times, right? Or has anything ever changed at all? Because even as you're saying that, and you're absolutely right, and I've, I've experienced some of those things, and even been fortunate enough to be part of some of those things, like in, in schools and stuff, but there's the opposite too also happening, right? And there just are more people now than there have ever been. And it seems like there's more good and more, I don't want to say evil, because it's really not the point, but more, less helpful situations also together, you know? I'm really fascinated with that. Are, are things getting better or not? Are they getting worse? All right, you look out one window and it's like, <laughs> why go on, <laughs> you know? Do you ever see airplane? You know, be like, okay, but uh, <laughs> the, the five people from my generation are laughing because they get the <laughs> reference. But you know, then the other way you look at it and you go, wow, things actually are starting. People are starting to wake up. Yes. I wonder why I can do it with my dog. Do let him be who he is. He can be obnoxious. He can be needy. He can be all kinds of things, and it's just fine. And it seems so much harder to do that with people. They can display the same qualities, and I go, nah, I roll my eyes upwards, and just a thought. 
I, I had the exact thought today. I'm, I'm staying with Phil, who is out there putting the food together, and he has three uh, dogs, and uh, <laughs> they're so unruly and crazy, and they yell at each other, they fight with each other, and they're so adorable. You know, they're just completely, and they're, and they're completely greedy, like one has a stick, the other one can't have the stick, you know? And I'm like, wow, I guess that is the way we are, but there's something there, isn't there? Like there's this atmosphere of love around an animal. You look at it and you don't expect it to be different than what it is, but we're not that way with each other, are we? Yeah. Uh, in answer to your question about whether things are really getting better, I think everyone will admit that there's a lot of terrible things that go on in the world uh, and here in this country. But if you look at history, for example, uh, I think if you go back hundreds of years, it was taken for granted that when an army conquered a city, it could, it could level the city and kill everyone in it. And no one even thought that was abnormal or wrong. Uh, the Vikings, right, they're, they're, they're legendary. One of the Crusades, they sacked Constantinople. They, uh, destroyed Jerusalem, um, Southeast Asia. There, when, when when Buddhist countries would have wars, they'd they'd kill um, uh, indiscriminately. But uh, um, that's not taken for granted anymore. When when, when things like that happen, we have uh, an outcry. Uh, we have the International Court of Justice that uh, occasionally does. Uh, take people to task and take societies to task for behaving that way. So um, maybe we have made some progress as a, as a, as a, as a human race, mm -hmm. uh, long term. This is a little dicey water, but why not? I mean, I put you all on the spot, so let me. But I, I want to ask a woman. Do, do you think the women always accepted that? Were they okay with that? Like men thought, that's what you do, you raise the city, you know? But I wonder what, if that's not a male kind of thing. Like I wonder how much history is really kind of comes through male point of view, right? Like we think of Alexander, we call him Alexander the Great. We don't call him Alexander the freaking paranoid murderer. You know, the insecure, you know, little rich kid who kind of slaughtered people across the world. We don't look at it that way. We think of how brave the Romans were, you know, or how amazing we were in Vietnam to try to liberate those people from their own culture. You know, it's, it, you know do you see what I'm saying? Um, and and it, yes, it is getting better now, but I wonder if it's because there's more of a communication between the assertive and the kind of more sane uh, aspects. And I, I don't want to imply that all women are sane, or more so. But I wonder, you know, if that, like, we've written history through these male eyes of who are the victors, right? And the victors write history. Have you heard that said, right? But what were the people living in the villages? What were the children thinking? What were the actual you know, communities thinking. Anybody have thoughts about that? So I don't, I don't have anything to direct, uh, that applies directly to that. 
I think it's a fascinating conversation, and I definitely uh, am interested in, in hearing more about that. Of course, I was the guy. I was just trying to change the conversation <laughs> to my idea. I would, you know, I'm just kidding. You take the ball. You go but where you, you need to. you were talking about, yeah. uh, you know, is there a way that we can, I don't know, basically, here's how the uh, kind of approaching everybody in a very present and a empathetic way has manifesting in my life, particularly in the past year and a half since the election. Um, I am on the political opposite spectrum of my parents. I live in New York. I think we can all guess I'm on the liberal side. <laughs> and what I've seen in recent times is kind of an entrenchment, a kind of an appro approach with aggression from those on my side, my side. And it comes from a, you are wrong, you are a terrible person. There's this instinct because it feels like our values have been so deeply attacked. And, in, and they have. But what I am, at least in my family, and I hope when the opportunity presents itself, because I'm kind of trying to practice it within my family, is to come from that place of calm and that place of presence and look at the other person, not immediately jump to that self-righteous, um, you know, you have, but what is it, what are they, what do they value deeply? What is it that they're scared of? What is it that, and try to come, instead of, of approaching it from self-righteousness and you are wrong and, you know, and not that I'm not, hope, you know, incredible, in profound support of everything, you know, hashtag resist, all of that, but having those conversations which are so difficult and not approaching it from a place of, but approaching it from a place of empathy. I'm trying to start that within my own family. And because I live in New York, I don't really have many opportunities to really engage with people on the yes. opposite side, but that is what I am really, really trying to do in my daily life. It is a struggle, <laughs> and sometimes just can't engage in anything political. But where the opportunities to present themselves, I'm trying. I'm really trying. So I just wanted to share that. Sometimes uh, I've heard it said uh, that diversity begins at home, like right here, like being able to accept our own feelings and see when we're closed-minded. I just recently uh, moved to Colorado. And uh, it, it's kind of purple, you know? There's a lot of both sides of the question there. And they are less political, generally. So those, they mix more easily than here it would be harder. And uh, I have a card game, like a weekly. It's actually a dice game. But we, I had had a weekly kind of game. And uh, the people at the table have a complete, you know, broad spectrum. but. One guy who is the most radically right, very NRA, entrenched for a long time, and uh, very anti-immigration nationalist, who's only been in this country for one generation, but that's, that's kind of an interesting point, but we kind of let that slide. His parents still speak Norwegian, but somehow Norwegians assume that they're <laughs> easily assimilable uh, rather than other people that might be darker uh, or something like that. And um, but that's me being, right, snarky. So I learned that that's not going to be helpful. 
But I have a Buddhist, or had, I just sold the house, but I had a Buddhist shrine in my room, and he was the most interested. He was the most receptive to meditation, knew about the Dalai Lama, could speak well about Buddhism, right? It was very interesting. Whereas the others who were more politically left thought meditation was weird, right? So you kind of don't know, do you? And have you been amazed by some of your family? It's kind of like... Yeah. It's it it is still it's it's you have to take your own ego out and you have to un, unless they are you know physically threatening to harm somebody right at that moment or it's it is a real struggle but it's it again if if we want to also even in, on a political if we want to convince anybody if you come at it attacking and just immediately saying you're a terrible person there's no place to meet and there's no right yeah I was and, trying this most recent family vacation of Memorial Day trying to give an example of what some of my African American mm -hmm. friends have experienced and there was one particular thing and again approaching it from a calm and I just gave an example to my very right wing brother in law that my black friend had gone to a black college and still felt very insecure about not being, you know, the acceptable American state, whatever. The, and he was just stunned to hear this. It was something he'd never considered before. And because of approaching it from this place, and then he was able to share his perspective and we were able to, but it's, you have to take ego out of it. You have to, but, and it's a constant struggle, but I'm trying. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Was there someone else? Hey, Joe. <clears throat> I was just going to make a, two comments. One is, if you're looking for people with opposite political uh, spectrum views to engage with, I think Facebook is your best bet. <laughs> I, I don't know if anybody else has had that experience, but that is my practice for uh, reaching out to people uh, on the other side of the political spectrum. Do you get angry? I, mean, I, I don't want to interrupt you just yeah. for a second. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm like talking this big game, right? But you, you got to see what my brain does with Facebook sometimes. So like, yeah. I get really, really yeah. irritated. I've had people, Nazi. I've had people threaten <laughs> physical violence towards me because of <laughs> <laughs> arguments. It's, it is an amazing tool. Yeah, yeah but please. Yeah. No, that was amazing. That, that, that and the other thing, um, you know, just talking about a little bit about what, what we were saying, uh, and I think, Joe, what you were saying too, is that the... Um, you know, Gandhi, Gandhi is famous for saying, <clears throat> uh, uh, be the change that you want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's a little bit of what you're talking about. And I, I like the adaptation of that, which is be the change that you want to see in other people. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that that's yeah. like, you know, when we, when we talk to people and when we engage with them and, and they're, you know, you're like... Uh, you're so closed-minded, you're so like, you're so, you know, you're, you're so conservative or you're so liberal, whatever it is, you know, and when you get aggressive that way in that kind of communication, it's the same thing. It's like closing off, uh, you're, you're doing the same thing regardless of where you are on that political spectrum. So I feel like in a way, right, to, to be able to, 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 to affect change in the, in, in the world, you kind of have to affect change in yourself first. Thank you. Right. Is that, does that make sense to everybody? Everybody hear that? Yeah. I want to piggyback off of what you were saying about entering into political conversations with 
with someone who shares opposite viewpoints, you were saying that uh, empathy is is a powerful tool within it, and and you you started to apply what what are their values, and I realized that uh, curiosity is also a, a a big defeater of ego within a within a conversation, and uh, yeah, empathy and and curiosity these are these are two things uh, that are at the core of a meditation practice. Um, yeah, that's uh, so. I'd, I'd just like to yeah, put that out there. There's a question that is like, can you have communication with somebody and not change? Right? Like, it, I mean, yes, you could say, hi, how are you? And, and keep it like that. But if you have a deep dialogue with somebody, doesn't that imply that you're going to change based on what information I, you get? Well, that may be very true. I... I, I that may be very true, but more often than not, at least in the conversations that I've had, um, not and this isn't just political, but there, yeah, certainly there might be some shifts that that you that you have as a matter of like your beliefs and your thoughts. But one thing that's getting, well, at least easier to harness, is just that this person uh, who you're talking to has a reality to their experiences that they that they feel pain um, that they're ultimately going to lose everything that they love or have people that they love pass away and it's kind of easy to harness in, in that sense just care without having to even invoke a, a rational positions against them or or with them yeah. mm -hmm. it's not always easy to do but. But yeah, there's there's that approach. Thank you. Yes. Uh, this is changing the conversation a bit, but I kind of been wanting to say it for a while. So uh, that my hope or my thinking for change would be if we could invest in uh, infants, because that's when we I feel. I'm psychologically oriented. That's when the the patterns really get, yeah. you know, and that you know they're starting to do research with infants and learning. There's tremendous agency. You know, you can close your eyes, you can arch away. You may not be able to lift your head, but you can. And that you know, as parents, if we can't respect, people can't see infants and you know use power, use you know, don't have empathy. We're off and running in all of these downward spirals. So. In terms of action, that's one very powerful action as a culture, if we can put more energy into those first months. You know. Anyway, just throwing that in. Thank you. <laughs> have you ever been to Bali? Do you know? No. Yeah. They have yeah. a kind of belief. I don't think it's exclusive to Bali. I think it's maybe a Hindu idea that children are deities, at least until they're three or until the Brahmara, you know, all this kind of seals over. That's before three. But that while they're open, you know, the soft spot of the head, right? That while they're open, that they need or should be or could be treated as deities. It's like they're right about everything, they're, they're just encouraged, and, 
you know, this is a culture that doesn't have a high value on efficiency, by the way. You know, they kind of are artistic and very kind of, you know, have their own style or way of doing things. But it was really impressive to watch this because if you... It's the same idea of the tolku system in Tibet. Do you know that? Do you f if you've ever seen the movies, the, the Golden Child or anything, this idea that a, a child would be recognized as a reincarnation of a teacher, is that true? Well, I don't know, but if you tell a child that they are a Buddha and start treating them that way, chances are they're going to develop in a way that's you know, very sane and open. The same thing in the other culture. We think that if you give a child a lot of leeway, it's good the child's going to devolve into some kind of animalistic, vicious behavior. But maybe the opposite is actually true. Maybe the more encouragement and love and space we give people, the more they'll actually be sane. Does that make sense? I don't know, because we have an incarceration culture in America, you know? Numbers-wise, it's incredible. We are the land of the free. <laughs> a certain percentage of people are locked away habitually and constantly, and a large percentage of them are um, people of color and minorities and things like that. That's kind of a little strange. Or maybe it's not so strange. Maybe it's a way of controlling things. But that incarceration doesn't seem to make people better, does it? I don't know. Maybe some people get put away to jail, or, or maybe there are some jails that are actually encouraging and helpful for people. But I think most people that get locked up for, what, what would be the word, reform or something, are actually the opposite is what happens. And when people are treated with a certain largesse and a certain openness, sometimes they respond really quite well. So it's an interesting way to look at it. So I'm just going to wrap this up. I know it's been long. This is actually quite late for us. So thank you for your, well, it's definitely time to go now. Uh, it's okay. But I want to thank you all very much for putting your heart and effort and energy into all this. And I do want to just plant that seed that maybe discipline could be the discipline to treat ourselves with kindness and space, instead of this idea that if we beat ourselves into something, <laughs> that we're gonna succeed at anything but hating ourselves. Does that make sense? That this whole idea of nonviolence and nonviolent activism, meaning that we could be nonviolent and still engaged, and I believe that's possible. I don't want to wax any more about that, but I want to just plant that seed that we could find ways to communicate with people that allow ourselves to be vulnerable and open and change and learn, but maybe begin dialogues with our world in a way that is, is helpful. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Visit our website, nmai.shambhala.org for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Uh, we have a Shambhala Training Level 1 weekend coming up, the weekend of June 29th. As well, on the horizon, we have our seven-day meditation retreat beginning August 17th. 
If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. You can hear these talks live and in person. Meet the teachers. Meet the other people that you hear asking such amazing questions. It's a great time, a great community. You're invited. Okay? Have a great week, everybody. Later. Later.